Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you on this holiday weekend. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, Our key scripture this morning comes from the book of Hosea, who was one of the prophets that God sent to speak to his people. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. They do not direct their deed towards their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah also has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon his cities, and it shall devour his palaces. The days of punishment have come. The days of it shall devour, of, of, I'm sorry, the days of recompense have come. Israel knows the prophet is a fool, the spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifice of our lips." I like to start the service off with an encouraging word from the Bible. So that's why I, I wanted to start with this this morning. But um, maybe you've been in this kind of situation before. Have you ever found yourself to be in this place where someone is, is really, really mad at you? And they're mad at you because, they, because you didn't do something that they thought you should do. The only problem was you didn't know that you were supposed to do that something. This thing was very important. This thing was so important that your failure to do so says a lot about who you are. And the fact that they never asked you or told you to do this thing kind of doesn't matter in the end. You should have just known that this thing was what you were supposed to do. Now, this has happened to me on more than one occasion where someone has expected me to do something, I didn't know I was supposed to do it, and they got angry with me for not doing it. And it's a terrible feeling to have someone be mad at you because you didn't do something. And you know that you would have done it if they had just simply asked you or told you, but they're so angry that you didn't know. And the same question has come to mind the few times that this has happened to me. And the question is this, Why didn't you just tell me what you needed me to do? And why have you been angry with me all this time when you could have just come to me and talked to me? 
I can't do what you need me to do if I don't know what it is. Right? Seems very reasonable. Uh, It's never worked in any of these situations, but it seems like a reasonable thing to say. I want to make one thing uh, painfully clear, which the prophet Hosea has also made clear for us this morning. That situation, if I had only known I should do, I was supposed to do it, I would do it, is not the situation that the people of God are in. They cannot claim ignorance. They cannot claim that they didn't know. They, they can't claim any of those things. And it's for these reasons. Number one, the people of God knew God. They knew who He was. They knew what He was about. Secondly, they had the law, so they knew what God expected of them. The law even provided for how they should deal with their failures and when things go wrong. It was all very clearly laid out for them. Number three, God had given them everything that they had. He called them out and made them a people. He sent them to the land and gave them the land. He provided everything for them. They literally would not exist as a nation without the calling of and providing from God. And God had rescued them and delivered them multiple times. The people of God knew what it took to be in a relationship with God. Yes? And what did they decide to do? Over and over and over again. And this is the terrible thing about where we are in the story right now. They willingly chose to not do what it was that God had asked them repeatedly to do. And he even warned them, if you make this choice, this is what will happen. And they went ahead and made those choices anyway. The failure was no accident or mere oversight on their part. And how do we know that it was no accident or oversight? Most of the time, when they chose to disobey and leave God, what did they run to? Another God. Another God. And at the bottom of all this mess is a very important question which we have asked before in this space. And the question is, does God matter? The people of God treated God as if He did not matter. As if leaving Him was no big deal. As if choosing to worship golden calves and poles that were stuck in the ground was no big deal. And then on the other side of this, you have God, who knows what about himself. I'm God, that's a tree. Right? He knows this about the entire situation. And God, He refuses to be less than all that He is, the powerful Creator of all that exists. He also refuses to be ignored, for you cannot ignore the one true God. But perhaps most shockingly, though His people have left Him and have chosen to worship these silly things, God refuses to give them up. He refuses to give them up. He pursued them and reminded them of who he was. And so we find ourselves in this weird place in the story where the people of God are gone. They're just gone. 
And God is looking for a way to reach them. And so he sends someone to speak to the people of God. One person. One person who still hears him. One person who still is going to follow him. Because remember, what is it that God needs? He needs someone who will hear, who will listen, and who will follow. Because God knows that even one passionate voice could turn the hearts of the people. All right. Week going through the story, and um, we have had a really difficult time uh, with the nation of Israel with the people of God. Um, and I know I've sort of, I've talked to the, about this to you before, but uh, I get so frustrated with them. And it, it's hard to watch the people of God make the same mistakes over and over again. So we're going to review some of the most recent mistakes. Um, going all the way back before uh, David, before Saul, the people decided that they wanted a king. Because they wanted to be like all of the other nations. And so they went to Samuel, who was the prophet at the time, and they asked Samuel if they could have a king. And Samuel goes to God, and God says, well, I'm their king. And they can have a king, but it's a really bad idea. If you remember, if you were here with us, God actually tells Samuel, let them know everything that's going to go wrong if they get a king. So they're going to take your land, they're going to take your wealth, they're going to turn you to slaves, your children will be theirs. They're going to have to fight for your king, and your king is going to act in his own interests. And their response overwhelmingly was, give us a king, right? This is what they want. So God gave them Saul, who was not such a great king. Um, but then came David, and David was a man who loved God, and he had a dynamic relationship with God. He, he trusted God in everything he did, and David was a really good king who really loved God with all of his heart. And under David's reign, the people were all united. They came together uh, as one. They rose to new heights. They reclaimed the ark. Uh, Jerusalem was set up as the capital city. Uh, David really, really wanted to build a temple for God, but God said, no, your son will build the temple. And so David spent his life um, drawing the people together, uh, speaking to them about who God is, and, and, and even with his massive moral failure, he still returned to God and stayed true and faithful to him. And he spent his life amassing uh, a lot of wealth so that they could build the temple for God that David really wanted them to build. And then Solomon, his son, became king, and Solomon just kind of ran with it from there. And, and, and Israel found itself in this new place where uh, people, leaders from foreign nations, I mean, even from Egypt, were coming to them and, and paying tribute and giving them uh, money and supplies. And, and so Solomon builds this huge, grand temple for God. He, he builds all these other things, and, and the nation of Israel really just kind of rises up as this place. It's now the place to be. All right, It's the place where everyone wants to be, where everyone wants to live. They have all of this stuff. But Solomon 
he starts to act a little bit more like a diplomat, and so he takes his first wife uh, in marriage as a way to sort of form a treaty with someone else. And by the time everything is said and done, Solomon has 700 wives and 300 concubines. And, um, yeah, so, and all and these wives and concubines, they worship other gods. They worship these foreign gods. And so Solomon starts to worship these foreign gods, and he forgets, about God, and it gets to be so bad that towards the end of Solomon's life, God uh, speaks to uh, to someone else and says, "Hey, I'm going to give you the land." He, he goes to Jeroboam and says, "We're going to divide the kingdom. You're going to take part of it. I'll leave a little bit with with Solomon's line because that's what I said I would do. But I'm going to divide the people." And he promises Jeroboam that Jeroboam could have. The same promise that he gave to David, which that was that his throne would last forever. And so Jeroboam and Rehoboam get on the get on the throne. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. And the people all come to Rehoboam and said, Things have been really hard. We've been working really hard for you. Can you lay off of everything? We just want a break. And Rehoboam says, No, of course not. We have whipped you with the cord. Now I will whip you with scorpions. And I will... And the people divide and Jeroboam goes to the north and Jeroboam is supposed to be the one who's going to follow God. But if you remember from last week, what does Jeroboam do? He decides that he's in danger of losing the people altogether, so he establishes a copycat religion where he makes these golden calves, he gives the people something to worship, and he says, these are the gods that led you out of Egypt. He hijacks their history with God and puts it onto these things. And the people just are not in any sort of relationship with God. So, welcome to the era of the kings and the prophets. We've had some pretty uh, rough times with these stiff-necked people. Like, you know, the Judges is hard to read, the book of Judges. Because the cycle repeats itself. Well, this is like, sort of like the Judges on steroids. Because the dynamics have changed so much. You know, when you read, when we read through the books of the Judges, there was a pattern that continued, if you remembered. If you remember what it is. The people are with God. They forget about God. Okay, God gives them up. They fall under the control of a foreign nation or something else. The people realize how miserable they are. They remember God. They call out to God. God raises up a judge. The judge delivers them. And then they're back with God again until... They forget about God and the whole thing starts over again. But there is, as, as much as I hate that cycle that they're in, at least there is something good happening. Where the people are hearing who God is, they're remembering who God is, and they find themselves restored. We find ourselves now in this period of time where things are not, they don't even have sort of that ending of the cycle to go back to. The, the people of God, you can't really even call them the people of God anymore. They are the people formerly known as the people of God. And, and this, is where, this is where they are. And we find that the people of God have again chosen to worship other gods, and the farther away they get from the one true God, the worse their lives become. So, let's take a moment before we jump into this today. Um, to reflect on what God is doing and where God is when all of this is happening. Now, God has 
had some rough times with these people. And, and I want to argue that there are, there are two basic things that God wants at this point in the story. Okay? I mean, there are a lot of things that God would like to happen, a lot of things that God would like to change, but there are two basic things that God would like to happen at this point with his people who are gone. All right? Number one, he wants to be recognized as God. Have you ever been in a work situation where you worked really hard on something and you get it out and you get it ready and then it comes time for a presentation and your supervisor who didn't work on it takes the credit for it? Or a coworker who didn't work takes the credit for it? How does that feel? Right? It's a terrible feeling. Imagine how God must feel. The one true living God watching his people bow down to strip down trees or to cows that are made of gold or to anything else. He has watched this happen over and over again. Nothing compared to him, and yet he still couldn't get his people to choose him. That is, you know, that, that just gets under your skin, doesn't it? That God couldn't convince his people about how amazing he was, so they would stick with him. So, number one, what God wants is to be recognized as God. That all these other gods would just go away. Number two, he wants his people to come back to him so that he can restore them. We cannot forget that when the story started, God had a vision for what life with his creation would be. And this thing that was happening was not it. God knows how good and full and amazing life with him can be, and yet he sees his people suffer because they are making all the wrong choices. He must punish them and correct them, but what God really, really wants more than anything else is to restore them to himself so that they will be his people again and he can pour out his blessings on them. Again, it's the most frustrating thing in the world. They're acknowledging fake gods instead of him and secondly, he can't bless them because they won't choose him. And he has to watch them go and do all of these things and live these lives and worship these fake gods. But what he really wants is for them to come back to him. So if he's going to do that with these people that have left him, he must reach them somehow. So how does God, it's a different situation a little bit, how does God try to reach a people that are no longer interested in him, period. That are no longer interested in him, period. They're already gone. They've left him and they have been ruled by several different, different kings and queens that have led them away from God. So what can he do? Let's take a step back for a second and recognize something. It's a miracle that God wants to do anything with them at all. At this point. That's a miracle that he even cares anymore about these people. But here's what he does. 
God sends a voice, one person, to go in and tell everyone that he is still their God, that he still matters, and that if they will turn their lives over to him, they will be restored. One person. Why one person, church? Because he can't get everyone. With all the voices that are crying out around them, with all the symbols and the shakers and everything else, the people cannot, will not, do not hear the voice of God. But what does God need? He needs one person who will go, someone who hears him, someone who listens to what he says, and someone who will follow. And we're going to add to that, not just follow, but speak. The job of the prophet is not an easy job. You're basically going in and telling everyone what's wrong with them. How they've messed up and why they should come back to God. It's not a position of popularity, let's say, where you are gaining a lot of friends if you're a prophet. But let's get back up to speed. Okay. Here's where we are at this point. The northern kingdom, Israel. Remember, so we have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Okay? The northern kingdom of Israel has suffered under six evil kings. Uh, None of them belong to God. Jeroboam started this off, as we said, on the wrong foot by uh, making golden calves and idols. But each king after him did their best to make things worse. How bad were things? Um, Archaeological evidence uh, shows a picture that we don't really like. So... Even as the Israelites ran from the Lord, they had amassed so much wealth in the time of Solomon that they were still experiencing a great deal of prosperity. People lived in vast homes and drank expensive wine. And for those living in Israel, things felt just fine. Life was good. And so when life was good, the idea that God wasn't on their side just didn't resonate with them. It didn't matter so much to them. And that's pretty true of us, right? When things are really good, few worried about the consequences of their worshiping other God and abandoning God's law. But in in reality, what was happening was that Israel was pushing itself closer and closer to the brink of destruction. And God had withheld his judgment, his absolute judgment from them for a while, but his judgment was coming. Here's the crazy thing. Do you know why God withheld his judgment from them? Because he wanted them to change their minds. He wanted them to change their minds. And so he waits through these generations for them to change their minds, for them to repent and to come back to him. But they won't do it. They just keep making the same bad decisions. So God sent his prophets during these times to give them warnings, to turn them around, to tell them that they should not uh, worship the Baals or the Asherah poles, that none of these things were the real God. So, God has to do something which again seems pretty ridiculous to us if we just think about it sort of outside the box here. And that is this. God had to reestablish to the entire world who he was. So think about it this way. All the people are worshiping either the Baals or the Asherahs, these foreign Canaanite gods. They're already there. They're already worshiping these things. Every culture has its own form of worship. And when the people of God, the Israelites, stop worshiping God, then who knows about God? No one. Right? If the people of God don't remember him, then why will anyone else remember him? 
Do you remember the things that um, that that God or, or that um, the prophets, that Samuel, that uh, Moses, that all of them used to say to God when when they were coming out, that Abraham used to say, God, don't do this this way because if you do, then the people will forget about you. Don't change the story of what you're doing. Well, the story has changed and everyone has forgotten about him. They don't know that he's the one true God. They don't know who he is. So he had to show the world that all of these gods were nothing compared to him. So Ahab was king of the north and had married this lovely, demure uh, woman named uh, Jezebel who uh, liked to kill anyone who spoke against her gods. Uh, during this time, they were uh, Israelites were actually offering their children um, to gods and sacrifice. Um, that's how she liked things to go. Um, so God first sent drought on the land. He kept it from raining so that things would dry up and they would recognize God, but they still wouldn't recognize God. So Elijah who told them it's going to stop raining, then it stops raining, Jezebel gets really angry and Elijah has to run and hide. And it's during this time that God feeds him with the ravens uh, out in the wilderness. But it came time for Elijah to come back and give a new message to Ahab and to Jezebel. So he comes back and everyone says, hey, Elijah's back. And they're like, no, Elijah's not. Yeah, Elijah's back. Well, where can we find him? So Ahab, the, the, all the prophets of Baal, they come out to meet Elijah. So this is in 2 Kings chapter 18. It's a long passage, but it's a great story. So we're going to read all the way through this from 2 Kings 18, starting in verse 17. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? You love that, right? Elijah's the only one that's speaking up for God, and Ahab's like, Why are you making so much trouble for us? Why did you keep it from raining? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to, eat me, to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Okay, this is our first WWF wrestling match in the history of time. Okay? What does God essentially do through Elijah? He sets the time and the place. After school, you and me, behind the library, right? All of the prophets of these other gods have to come and all the people of Israel needs to come. And so they get there and everybody's here and Elijah is the first one to speak up and he makes one simple thing which tells us what God is after here. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. What is going to come after this is the proof as to what? Who is God? But the people said nothing, not surprisingly. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left because Jezebel had killed everyone else who had spoken up for God. 
But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Sounds fair, right? We're going to make two offerings. We'll set it up just the same. Whichever one shows up is God. And whichever one doesn't is not. All right. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it, prepare it first since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. Okay. This, we are now entering perhaps the best case of biblical taunting um, that you have ever seen. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So just talk louder, right? So they shouted louder and then they started slashing themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Okay. So here's something we know. Is Baal or Asherah real? No. So can they respond to this call? No. But here's what the followers of Baal and Asherah believed. They believed in the things that Elijah was actually taunting them about. That if they weren't talking loud enough, that they needed to talk louder. And if they still weren't getting the attention of their gods, the thing that they would do next is begin to disfigure themselves. They would start to slash themselves, cut themselves, because this act of sacrifice would then draw the attention of the gods. There's something sad about this. There really is. That this is what it means to them to get the attention to a, of a god who clearly doesn't care about them very much if you have to go this far just to get his attention. And they're trying to prove his existence. Which wouldn't he want to show up in this case? But he doesn't. We know why he doesn't, church. But they did not know why. And there is something awful about that. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two saths of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. 
Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Now, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are, get this, turning their hearts back again. Show them you are God and they will be yours once more. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil and licked up the water in the trench. When the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink. For there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked, and there was nothing there. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and one of my favorite moments, he tucked his cloak into his belt and beat Ahab home. There are moments in the story of Scripture when God wins a battle with a flare of drama. David and Goliath certainly falls that category. The plagues certainly fall into that category. The parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army. But this is something a little bit different. It's, it is a dramatic confrontation, but in this case, for the first time in this clearly, God directly challenges the other gods that people keep choosing. These other gods that people want. And Elijah, he stands as an outsider in this situation. He's the only one that stands for God. And he's facing off against 900 prophets and all the people of Israel and Ahab, the king, and, Je- and Jezebel, who's not there. Thank goodness. He was really no one in this situation. Still, Elijah courageously confronted King Ahab and all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And he challenged the status quo. Remember, worshiping Baal and Asherah was the normal thing. Speaking up for God was not. That had been eliminated within the people of Israel. So, 
Elijah, when he comes, he wasn't necessarily challenging what they did or how they did it or the decisions that they made. More fundamentally, Elijah was challenging who is the real God and when the real God step forward. Because God and Elijah both believed that if the real God stepped forward, what would happen to the people of Israel? They would come back. And what does God want? To be recognized as God and to restore his people. If they would only come back to him. So it's a huge showdown. It's a big win for God, right? I mean, all the people said, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. So everything is okay again, right? No! Because everybody just goes back home. They just go back home. And, and now Jezebel is seriously angry. Because all of her prophets have been killed. And what does she want now? Elijah has to be dead, like yesterday. We need to erase him in the memory of everything that has happened from the minds of these people. And here's where the story of Elijah has an important moment that reminds us what the big story is really all about. Things have gone off the rails since, you know, about Genesis 3. And it's easy to forget some of the fundamentals of who God is and who we are supposed to be. And I mentioned this earlier, but we're going to look at it just a little bit more closely. The God of creation spoke everything into existence. But when it came to creating humanity, he lovingly molded us out of the dirt and breathed his own breath of life into Adam. It was a deeply personal moment. Because God had designed that he would have a special relationship with mankind. He created the Garden of Eden as a place that would provide for every single need that Adam had. And when Adam had a need that was not provided by the Garden, he created Eve to round out and perfect what he had done. Adam and Eve walked and they talked with God. They had a close personal relationship with him. There were no barriers. There was no separation. It was just them and God in this place that God created for them. This was the design. This was how it was supposed to be. God and his people. No rules. No law. No sacrifices. Just being together in this place where God could pour himself out continually upon his people. Where he could be known by them and he could know them. We are very well aware of how things broke down. And as God struggled with humanity as a whole, and the nation of Israel in particular, it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget that the opening idea was God walking hand in hand with those he loved. That's how this story starts. God walking hand in hand with those that he loves. And Elijah, he's the only one. And he trusted completely in God. And because of this, Elijah was called to do difficult things for God, truly difficult things for God. 
Remember, when he comes back to speak to Ahab, there is already a price on his head. By challenging all the prophets, he's just pushing his luck. By winning, it only made things worse. And when things went south, Elijah did what we all do. He certainly, what I do, and that is he got depressed. He got really, really down. How can I do everything that God asked me to do and end up back in a stinking cave hiding for my life? I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. All of this work that I put in here has gone to nothing. So he sat on the ground and wondered why things had gone wrong. And I see something about us in this, and that is we can win great victories for God, but when things go wrong, we despair. But God is with us and wants to take care of us because the story starts with God holding hands with those that he loves. From Second Kings chapter 19, we have the exact opposite of the story we just read. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, the fake gods, remember, where this has been established. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and drink, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword and I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Okay, let's pause here for a second. I want you to notice something interesting about what God does. What is the first thing he does for Elijah? He feeds him. Then he lets him rest then wakes him up again and does what? Until Elijah has strength. It's like God is nursing someone back from sickness. Sitting by his bed, giving him what he needs until he's strong enough to get up and go. And he gets up and goes, and where does he go? He goes to Mount Horeb, the mountain of the Lord. And there he finds himself in a cage. And it's only at this point that he has been strengthened, that he has journeyed, that he has come to the place of God. 
that God starts to ask him questions. Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah tells him, this stinks, man. Everyone's dead. They've killed them all and I'm going to be like them. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. So he takes care of him first. But when he comes to this point and Elijah is feeling alone and like a failure and like he wants to die, what does God offer him? He offers him hope. But how? Through his what? Presence. You are not alone. God is going to come by. Now, if you're Elijah at this point, you're thinking, this is going to be amazing. I am going to see God. But God needs to teach Elijah something in this moment. And not in an in-your-face sort of way, but in the way that Elijah can know and understand what is going on. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shephat, from Abel, Maloah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Haziel. And Elisha will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Jehu. Yet I will reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. There's something that I love about this moment, and for two reasons. Again, Elijah is he's completely hopeless. He's depressed, he's down, he's asking for his own death, and so God promises his presence. But and, and then these things happen. Right? The wind is so strong that it's shattering the mountain. But God Elijah understands that God is not in that wind. And then there's an earthquake. And the earth is shaking. But in this moment, God is not in the earthquake. And there's a fire. A consuming fire. It's not a matchstick. right? It's a big one, baby. But Elijah understands that God is not in fire. And then there is a whisper. And Elijah covers his face because he's going to be in the presence of God and walks out to meet him. 
Why do I love that so much? What did Elijah think when he got to that cave? I'm alone and I want to die. God brings his presence to him, but this is the best part. God's presence is not what Elijah thinks it should be. Elijah probably would have been thrilled with the strong wind, the earthquake, or the fire. Why? Because all of those things are displays of great power and might. Instead, God whispers to him. The fire, the earthquake, the wind, none of those things are personal. But the whisper, the whisper is just for Elijah. The whisper is just for Elijah. We don't know what he heard. I would like to imagine it was something like, I am here with you. And Elijah comes out and he brings his same complaint. But what does God do now? Well, here's how it's going to happen. You're going to anoint this person and this person. You're going to set up a successor for you. They're going to take care of all the enemies. You're not going to die in this way. Right? And I'm going to watch over everyone who is still with me. It's a beautiful thing. Because God church is not just present in the big moments that we love he is also present in the quiet moments when we feel alone and he's still moving and working and bringing things to resolution whether we feel like he is there or not because what did god establish he is god these other things are not and god is working and moving. When we look at the story, it would be so easy to make the story about us, about failure, about sin, about breaking down, about feeling alone, about winning and then losing, about making stupid decisions. And it would also be easy to believe as we read through this and see this happen over and over again that the story is somehow lessening God's impact on the world. After all, if the whole world is ignoring him, then how can he be the God that he wants to be? But we are reminded today that this story is not our story. It's not about us, though we are a part of it. This story, at its core, is God's story. And though... Others might try to push him out of it. He is still God. And he is still the one who is moving and shaping the world. And remarkably, remarkably, he still has a plan to redeem these people who have rejected him again and again and again. And he will not let that go. Because there are two things that he wants. He wants the world to know he is God, and then he wants to pull his people to him. Because that's how the story started. And that is how the story is going to end. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then He said, Write these words down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. The story starts out with God walking in the place He created with the people He loved. And though it might get pulled a lot of different ways in between, the story ends with God walking in the place He created with those He loved, wiping the tears from their eyes with His own hands. This is God's story. And I'm so grateful that He is the one driving it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the way that You created us, designed us to be in relationship with You. God, we see ourselves in these people who reject You and walk away from You. But God... This is your story. And your desire is to bring those you love back to you. Thank you for being relentless in your pursuit of us. Thank you for not just writing us off. Thank you for the way that you love us in such a way that doesn't allow us to just stay where we are, but calls us to something deeper and greater. Thank you that you work in huge, big, miraculous ways. And thank you that you whisper to us when we're alone. You are God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you and cares for you and invites you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.